0: I am genuinely excited to return to the book of Ephesians uh, this morning with you all. So far, we have if you haven't been with us, we've actually divided our study of Ephesians into three parts so far. This will be the beginning of the third part. By the time we get done, we'll actually divide it into four parts, so stick around for part four. But um, we began this series actually all the way back in November of last year. So some of you if you're like me might need some help remembering where we've come from. The first part of it we looked at chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Ephesians where the apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus giving them a picture of get this not how great it is to be a Christian but how awful it's not to not how awful it is to not be a Christian. We call that study the old you because Paul puts together the picture of our old selves. And remember, he's not writing to a lost world. He's writing to Christians, reminding them, hey, you should remember what it was like in your old self. Before you were in Christ, as a Christian, you should remember the position that you were in. He draws this picture drawing out an emphasis of the absolute depravity of man, even undergirding the grace of God with a depiction of how low God reaches down to save us. Now, this is a a difficult doctrine or a difficult truth for some people to embrace, in fact, Earlier this week, I had the privilege of speaking with somebody that wasn't quite ready to accept the absolute depravity of man. Their picture of heaven was one that, well, as long as I try my best to do good, I can earn my way into heaven and maybe get steps up. And I explained to them that my understanding to heaven is, well, if God looked at me and judged me based off of who I am, he would say, "I deserve to go to hell." The depravity of man actually is so consequential, we have to be able to accept the truth that Paul gives us in chapters 1 and 2, that in the old you, we are completely hopeless without the work of Christ on the cross. In fact, that's what makes our transitions to chapter 3 and 4, where Paul then begins to elaborate on the new identity that we have in Christ so great. Even as he begins to expound upon the grace of God in saving people, in inheriting them, in grafting them in. Remember, Paul wouldn't have asked people, have you been saved? He would have asked them, are you in Christ? And in this new picture of being in Christ, our identity completely wrapped up in what God has done for us, Paul actually begins to elaborate just on how great it is that God has saved us from ourselves. When I get to heaven, I do not expect that God will ask me, why should I let you into heaven? Rather, He will look at me as justified by the works of the cross, and He will give me admittance to heaven. It's there that I will be able to experience God's presence. It is there that I will be able to relish my relationship with God. It is there that I will truly be able to embrace the grace and the working of God that gives us the opportunity, the availability, the hope of salvation. In chapter 3 and 4, this transition that Paul makes in elaborating our new identity in Christ, telling us who we are, this picture that he gives us is one in such that Paul is actually not just describing what it means to have a new identity in Christ, but he begins to elaborate on just how great God's work is. He moves from doctrine to application. Sometimes we talk about doctrine and cool things that we could read about in the Bible. It's important for us to realize studies of doctrine and theology are really a means to an end. Without application, they're pointless. We can't study what God has offered us in salvation, the grace that He gives us, or even the depravity of man, unless we take time to apply it. And that's what Paul does in chapter 3. As he starts to elaborate on what's being done in the work of a or in the life of a Christian that we've been saved from this absolute depravity, unable to save ourselves, grafted into this family of God, there is a life that we have to live. There's a new life created in us. When we identify with Christ, it doesn't just save us, but it transforms us. And in his explanation of this, Paul actually doesn't begin talking about you. If you remember, the beginning of Paul's application is in describing what he writes is the manifold wisdom of God being revealed in the church. He describes this great working of God in establishing the church, the body of believers. How precious is this thing that angels were not even aware of God's plan until Christ died on the cross. When, they weren't even aware of God's plan until Jesus began establishing the church during His earthly ministry. They weren't even aware, and when they saw it, they rejoiced and they praised God. The church is a special entity. Not an organization, but an organism. And here... In this application, Paul starts with describing how precious the church is, encouraging the believers in Ephesus to apply this truth to taking care of the church, making sure that there's a bound of unity among them, that they would take care of this bound of unity. And then he begins looking a little bit deeper. The way that I would describe the book of Ephesians so far as we've studied it would maybe be like some... Uh biologist pulling out the microscope and studying what God has created. In application, Paul starts with the organism. He zooms out, he gets his microscope, he puts it on the lowest power level of magnification, and he looks at the organization of the church. Not organization, organism, right? It's a living entity, it's not an organization, it's an organism. And he looks at it, and he looks at how precious the church is. He looks at everything that's inside of it. Then he starts to zoom in because he wants to look at the pieces. And he zooms in, increases the power, and he starts looking at the individual parts of this organism. Anyone who's been through high school biology knows that he probably made note that the mitochondria was the powerhouse of the cell. I don't know what the powerhouse of the church is. It's probably you. Maybe your prayer life. Anyways, I'll try not to digress too much into that. Anyone knows studying the different unique parts doesn't do us much good unless we look at the way that they relate to one another. It doesn't do much good to know what the mitochondria is unless I take the time... Unless I take the time to also study the way that it relates to the endoplasmic reticulum and all the other parts of the cell. In studying the uh, the church, Paul's next move, where we are this morning in chapter five, is not to look at the individual parts, but instead to look at the relationship that they have between one another. Realize we're three steps into Paul's application. If you didn't get the other parts that we've been studying in Ephesians, I cannot give you a stronger encouragement to go back and study those, to listen to the sermons that are available on our church website, to make sure that you understand how we've gotten to this level because we've actually zoomed in twice. We looked at the organism as a whole. We zoomed in, looked at the individuals, and now we're looking at the way that they relate with one another. All of these things build on each other, and that's what Paul is doing here in Ephesians chapter 5. Anyways, I did begin this morning by saying that I'm genuinely excited to be here because I think it's a fantastic study and the application comes easily when we start to look at how we're supposed to relate with one another. We don't just desire to drill down, but we desire to understand how individual components interplay between each other. And now, just as our understanding of depravity has helped us to understand the magnitude of God's grace and how God's design helps us to understand our role in the church, now we can see just how consequential our relationships are to our walk with Christ. And maybe we don't. But while we've come, maybe coming to the end of this the beginning of this chapter, the issue of forgiveness has already um, shown up quite a bit. Even in looking at the church, we've seen just how essential it is that Christians are willing to forgive one another. In fact, how consequential it is to our relationships and to the bounds of unity that we have. And, uh, and now we look at how these relationships and this issue of forgiveness begins to interplay as individuals. Francis Schaeffer said, our relationships with one each other is the criterion that the world uses to judge whether the message that we bring is truthful. Christian community is the final apologetic. I bring this up in introduction this morning because if there's any essence that we need to grab hold of before looking at Ephesians chapter 5, it is that we need to see how consequential maintaining relationships is to living a spiritual life. The way that we care for the people that have come into our life, our children, our fathers, our mothers, our, our grandparents, our friends, our neighbors, the way that we care for these relationships, co-workers and colleagues, the way that we take care of these is the final First, apologetic. The the biggest defense that anyone will ever be able to present of Christianity. The way that we live with people is the biggest testimony that we have to the rest of the world. Christians that neglect this often carry uh, carry with them a testimony that is not receptive. and People don't want to receive it. Because when we fail in our relationships, caring for the people that we have in our lives or the commitments that we've made to others, when we fail there, ultimately the world sees something that looks just like what they already have. Because Christians aren't willing to allow doctrine to be a means to an end. That's a pretty decent introduction. You ready to read the Word? I invite you, if you haven't already, to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 2 through... uh, Actually, whoever makes these slides has some work to do. We'll (laughs) We'll actually be going through verse 10 in chapter 5, not verse 9. So I invite you to open your Bibles there so that you'd be ready to read along with me as I read out loud. And um, before we do that, we will go ahead and turn to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this morning, for the opportunity that we have to worship you in songs and in praise. God, I pray that we would worship you with our lives, with our bodies. God, I pray that we would worship you with our words and the application that we make from this. God, I know that when you speak to your people, you speak to people with hard hearts. We come to you this morning, your congregation and your people, asking that you would soften our hearts, that we would be able to receive the word that you have for us. God, we rely on you and you alone to give us the word that we should have this morning. In Jesus' heavenly name we pray, amen. The Bible says, I'll begin in verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no Filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are a light in the the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The first admonition that we find from Paul is that Christians are supposed to be walking, in this picture, verse 2, to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We've already spent some time, at least in our study of Ephesians, but Easter was last week when we spent a great deal of time talking about this then that we look at the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross, we not only see His suffering and His anguish that we deserved, but we also see His redemption, the power of resurrection that is promised to us. As Christ was resurrected, so too are those who are in Christ to be resurrected with Him. This was what we call the propitiation. I love saying that word. It was a propitiation, which means that Christ, God, the God-man, became the sacrifice to satisfy God's wrath. Now, that doesn't mean that God, some uh, big bully boy up on the hill with a magnifying glass with all of his ants down below him and his wrath needs to be satisfied. Rather, we understand God's wrath as the concept of actually his perfect and holy divine nature demands that he would be wrathful toward sin and judge it. Christ as a perfect sacrifice, remember in the Old Testament, they had calves and lambs and cattle and everything else that they would sacrifice and they had to continually do this year over year and over and over again because it was an imperfect sacrifice. So they had to continually propitiate, that is, satisfy God. Now, Christ, because He's perfect, He's human, completely without sin, is able to become the absolute satisfaction of God's wrath. He became a sacrifice that was um, fragrant to God. And, And what that simply means is that it was pleasing to him, that God received it. The encouragement that we have from Paul to the church in Ephesus here is that we are to walk in love as Christ loved us. Now, this is a big order. I like to compare the familiar passage in John 3.16 with what John writes in his first epistle, 1 John 3.16. Because this is the same encouragement that we find throughout the Bible. John 3.16 familiarly says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the promise of salvation, but... The life that we're to live after being saved goes on. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that He laid down our life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The first encouragement that Paul gives us is that we should walk in the same and like attitude of self-sacrifice rather than self-indulgence. And this actually connects to everything that's listed out in verse 3, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. This encouragement actually has a connection. Not only are you supposed to walk in such a way that there is self-sacrifice evident in your life, but you should walk in this way that when you communicate and you have these relationships with all the people that are brought into your life, it should be evident in the words that you use. Self sacrifice is not only the way that we love, but it's also the way that we care for. Self indulgence is really being manifested in this negative imperative that Paul gives us in verse 3 sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. All these things being named as um, self indulgence rather than self sacrifice. Surely this pursuit of Anything that is outside of God comes from a place not of not appreciating what it is that God has set out to restore in us. I think it's an important point to make whenever we think about what God has done in creation. He's not created us for the purpose that He could redeem us. He actually, He's a perfect God. When He created us, He created us perfectly. When He created humanity, He created us perfectly. Oh, this is a difficult thing to wrestle with if you start putting this side by side with the doctrine that I, I spent time talking about, about um, the depravity of man. How can we both be depraved and perfect? The answer is that we were created perfect and we were corrupted with sin. That means God's perfect design for us has been distorted. It's been damaged. It's in disarray because of the consequences of sin that all of us have to experience in this world. That perfect image of God that is inside of us has been not destroyed, but slightly dissolved. Our goal then in being able to have these relationships with people relies upon God's ability to restore us our avoidance of the things that we would call self-indulgence, or maybe not avoidance, but rather not putting our focus there or our privilege there or even our emphasis there, the reason we run away from self-indulgence is because it inhibits God's ability to restore us. Actually, I want you to look at the uh, parenthetical phrase that Paul gives us in verse 5. He says, Again, the same list from verse 3, sexual, sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater. That is an idolater. The issue that we find that Paul is actually encouraging the believers in Ephesus to make note of is that we have to rely on Christ, not only in the way that we love each other, but that we would be restored. The imperative here, remember this doesn't, let's put the cart before the horse. The reason we are living in such a way to love one another or have these relationships with one another is because we are relying and dependent on God's transformation in our lives. We're not trying to force ourselves up or stir ourselves up to be a community or a society that demonstrates love. Rather, we are a community that pursues God so wholeheartedly that it actually shows up in the way that we have conversations with one another. When we pursue God so much that sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness are not even named among us because we are consciously aware of God's presence in our relationships with one another. Spurgeon wrote, Nothing teaches us about the preciousness of the Creator as much as when we learn the emptiness of everything else. It's somewhat disheartening to realize that the things that trouble us and stress us out in our lives are empty. I mean, the stresses of taking care of a household that will one day decay It doesn't take long before we start to see bricks fall off. Jesus promises that everything in this world will be destroyed by rust and moths. And He encourages us to keep our treasure in heaven. The encouragement from this text, I believe, is in the same vein of application. It is that rather than being self-indulgent and regarding all of the things in this world that could possibly distract us or become an idol, we realize that the most precious gift we have in this world is actually the people that are in our lives. How are we supposed to care for people that betray us, people that dishearten us, and people that disappoint us? How are we supposed to care for people who are wrought with sin? We spent so long looking at this picture of the old you in chapters 1 and 2, this depravity of man. How awful people are. How are we supposed to care for these people if we do not rely on God who is transforming us? God who is giving us the ability to forgive. God who gives us the example of forgiveness and understanding this concept of depravity. We don't just look out, but we look at ourselves and we recognize our own need of a Savior. And in our own need of a Savior, we also find this great encouragement to forgive those who have... um, forgive those who have sinned against us or trespassed against us. And just as we see that encouragement to forgive them, we also see this encouragement that comes back from from chapter 4 where Paul's telling us that in the unity of the body that we should seek, that we would maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so this picture of our relationships with one another is not just an encouragement, but it's an imperative command from God. But remember... The transformation of God comes before we're able to care for these relationships. We cannot expect an unregenerate person to love the way that Christ loved. In fact, failure to recognize the way that Christ is loved is actually evidence that they don't understand it. They don't understand how in need they are of a Savior. Therefore, they don't understand the scale of forgiveness that God gives us. They don't understand the scale of God's grace, the magnitude that it has. In looking at the cross and seeing Jesus suffer, we are reminded of just how grievous God regards sin. It's easy to walk around and to say, I'm not that bad of a person. I haven't done all that much sinning. I certainly haven't killed anyone. But in the cross we see just how disastrous the smallest portion of sin is in God's regard because he's perfectly holy. Perfectly without sin. From my perspective, things don't look so bad. Cuz I'm I've seen worse. From God's perspective, He's lived perfectly, and that's His expectation. I am holy, therefore you should be holy. Nothing teaches us about the preciousness of the Creator as when we learn of the emptiness of everything else. Spurgeon's words encourage me not just to focus my eyes on God, but to really take heart of those things that are allowed to become a distraction Moving on, Paul's encouragement moves to verse 3 that we should put away that which does not fulfill the emulation of God in our lives with others. We have the order right. We are justified first, and it's through our sanctification that we're able to care for these relationships. Wow, I just used some words. Did everyone know what that meant? Justified, sanctified? We've spent some time talking about it, but these are crucial words for us to understand what Paul's describing. See, justification is a legal term which describes our position with God. It means that we are declared just or just as if we had never sinned the moment that we put our faith in Christ as our Savior. I've heard some people say that through justification that they are made just. And my friends, that's just not the truth. Justification is not the work of God that makes somebody righteous. Righteous. No. Justification means despite of how unrighteous you are, you have legally been given the state of being called righteous. You are not righteous. God's promise goes beyond that. He does something that nobody else in this world could ever do. He promises to sanctify us. Justification is the positional element of salvation. In the moment of accepting Christ as my Savior, I am declared just, not made just. God promises then to walk with us, never abandon us, and to continually make us more like Him. That's what we call sanctification. Friends, we can be sure that God only has justified those whom He is sanctifying. In fact, the only evidence of salvation any believer has in their life is not how spiritual they are, how often they go to church, how much of the Bible they've read, or anything else other than the can you look at your life and see the way that God is working. Can you see the changes in your life and the way that you regard people? Can you look at your life and see the way your conversations have changed? I remember when I used to joke crudely. I remember when I used to um, talk about filthiness or foolish talk was evident in the way that I regarded people. But because of the reliance on Christ, because I've been justified and as such, therefore sanctified, continually, day by day, these things are no longer in my conversations. Filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. Paul's encouragement is not only should, through the power of Christ, these things no longer be evident in your conversations, but they should also not be taking place among believers. They are out of place, he says in verse 4. Instead, what should be among us is thanksgiving. In fact, crude humor is... And let's, let's define what we mean by crude humor because it's not just filthy talk and jokes that um, point towards things that the believer shouldn't be spending time on. It's the way that through our insecurities we make relationships with one another. Uh, I think this is more evident among men than it is women. But spend any time in crowds and you'll find men making jest with one another rather than having a relationship poking fun at one another. I know where it comes from because, well, I'll tell you, I looked at myself and I asked myself, why am I persistently joking with people in a way that really puts them down? I mean, I run the risk of putting people down every time I connect with somebody. And the only answer I could find for myself was the reason I do it is I'm so insecure with myself and my relationships with other people that I don't want a real relationship. I'd rather joke and get close with somebody that way. What are the consequences of living life in that way? Not only am I potentially putting somebody down because I don't know what's going on in their life and whether they're going to be able to receive a joke well or not, But I'm also not growing in my relationship with the people that God has called me to grow in the relationship with. That's disobedience. Because I won't take care of the relationships that God's given me because I'm too insecure to do so. Instead, I have conversations with people that, as Paul writes, have no place among the saints. I have conversations with people that resemble more the conversations that you would find in the world than you would the house and the body of God. Sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, this body of believers. Not sinners, not the unregenerate, but a congregation of believers that have been called to life in God. The warning gets even bigger when we see that it's not just disobedience to God to take care of our relationships, but actually it's a warning that somebody that participates in this has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. After Paul has spent chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4 elaborating on what it means to be grafted in and inherited into the body of Christ's kingdom, this manifold wisdom of God revealed through the church. After all of this, if you're running around speaking like this, Not only is it evidence of what's in your heart, but you have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Does that mean get right to get with God? I've tried my hardest to emphasize this. The cart doesn't go before the horse. We're saved and then we're transformed. I'm not changed and made worthy to God. He invites me into a relationship with Him in my brokenness, in my filthiness. In my depravity, He pursues me. And then He makes me clean. Through this transformation, He promises that there would be real change. Friends, if this talk is in your life, Where is your sanctification? I warn you this morning because most of you are familiar faces. Most of you are familiar with what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. In fact, most of the people here are members of this church. God has only justified those who He is in the process of sanctifying. If you do not see the evidence of sanctification in your life, you should be concerned that there has been no justification in your life. This isn't an encouragement to make anyone scared, rather, just a point at what Paul has written. This is the first step and really looking not just at our contribution to the church, but at the way that we live in community with one another. Are we willing to set aside the insecurities that prevent us from having relationships with God's people? To set aside a way of communicating and speaking with one another that does not glorify God. Are we willing to allow through our relationships to let God take shape and mold our lives? This is the first sermon in which we've returned to the book of Ephesians. We've had a three week break. It's been a pretty good stretch. Lots of doctrine in chapters one and two, lots of application and the study of how great the church is in chapter three and four, and now chapter five. Paul really starts to hit home. Because it's not just understanding what the church is that he calls us to, now he calls us to interact with the people that he has called us to be with, to live in community with one another. And he starts to paint this picture as we'll move on. You'll see these relationships that we have aren't just our testimony to the world about the real transformation that's taking place in Christ, but it's actually the picture that teaches us of the way that God cares for us through marriage and through parenthood, through employees and employers. In all of these things, God is actually at work teaching us what it means to live in life with Him. In fact, the list presented to us in the text, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, all point to a failure to worship God. Martin Luther said that what your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God, your functional Savior, because it's the things that we spend our energy and our dedication focusing on when we zoom in on our lives. Functionally, that's what we rely on to save us from the despair in this world. I can say confidently that there is no person that has experienced, that, that, that has, uh, well, been blessed enough to not experience any suffering. Even the smallest among us has seen the disappointment when somebody's let her down. The oldest among us has probably seen the most. What do we run to to save us from this? Is it education? Is it books? Is it our homes? Is it the vehicle that we drive? Is it the the jokes that we make? Is it the sexual uh, innuendos that we laugh at? Is it the comedy club? Is it these things that detract from God? God offers us not just salvation in our future glorification, but He offers us rest in His presence today. In His presence today, He calls us to Him. But instead we run to everything we run to everything else for a small distraction. Final encouragement, and I'll pick it up. The final encouragement. Avoid empty words and discern what is pleasing to God. In context, I, I know that Paul's admonition to avoid empty words came from the, the his well, the early heresy of Gnosticism that was taking place near Ephesus. He was encouraging the people to avoid the Gnostics who said, because your spirit and body are separate, you can basically do whatever you want as long as you, in your mind, have a good relationship with God. It couldn't be furthest from the truth. In fact, actually look out, the same line of thought exists in our world today. Avoid empty words. Those who would try to be spiritual and speak about things with no application. Those who would seek to know God with no transformation. Avoid empty words in our conversations with one another. I'm not saying avoid small talk. That's part of of a maturing relationship. But realize that your call into community with others is to edify one another and encourage one another and seek something deeper. If we were to leave here this morning, all of us recognizing an idol that had been planted in our lives, if we were to uproot it and pull it out, but fail to place the love of Christ in its place, that idol would return. Whatever idol takes place in our, our lives, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, covetousness, all impurity. If we were to take it out of our lives and fail to replace the love of, put the love of Christ in its place and seek a deeper relationship with Him, that same idol would come back just like a weed in your garden. The root of the problem of crude humor and jesting is that we are actually replacing a genuine community and transformation with our jest. So thankful for the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. Not just because it gives us a picture of what God, I think it is maybe the best picture of God's, the magnitude of God's grace in our lives. But because Paul doesn't stop there. That grace is supposed to be evident in the way that we walk with one another. It's supposed to be evident in the way that we are living our lives. When we look at this picture... I don't know if you guys know this, but whenever I preach a dry sermon, I know it's dry. And I know it's necessary, and so I make you endure it because it's good for you. But I'll tell you why I love the book of Ephesians so much. It's so easy to look at the grace of God and what He's done for us and to simply sit back and say, My greatest praise is appreciating that I have a Savior. God doesn't stop there. He calls us into community with one another. And if you don't like being a part of community with one another, you're going to hate heaven. Because all these same people are going to be there. He calls us into community with one another because He uses our relationships to build us up. I... This week we went to the national meeting of the BMA of America and, and we all got together. and um, uh, I'm trying so hard not to say Shug and Big Daddy. Sherry and James were there with us and Rachel Jerry went along with us. The first night, the emphasis uh, of, of the entire and the theme being set for the entire meeting was that we would seek relationships. That through the preaching of the Word that we would have genuine relationships with one another. At one point, our president asked every minister who was 65 years and older to stand up. And I looked around at the immediate area around me. I saw Dr. Tony Cleaver, who is my Old Testament and New Testament and Life of Christ teacher at seminary. I saw Brother Wade Allen, who was my first discipling pastor who invited me into his home whenever I was more arrogant than now. And he fed me, and he spent time with hours with me, late nights with me, reading the Bible, teaching me how to read the Bible, encouraging me to seek God's will in my life, teaching me to be a husband by showing me how he was a husband. planning gifts of appreciation And revealing to me that, well, in the way that God made me, I'm not really that romantic. But it's important that I show my wife a little romance. Brother Wade taught me that. Brother Ron Field stood up. He was my first pastor. The man who was preaching when I was called to the altar. And so many others. All around me, it was amazing to say, look at all of the people that have poured into my life. It didn't happen just by studying the Bible or going to school or reading commentaries. Real Christian maturity doesn't come from intellectual ascent. It comes from relational experience, not just with God, but with His people. And that's why we're called to community. Because our relationships matter. You pray with us. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the people that you have brought into our lives. God, thank you for giving us Friends and family, God, thank you for blessing us with people who point us towards you. God, I pray that we would be a people that point others to you, that we wouldn't stop there, that we would pull people together. God, thank you for the vision that you've given to this church, mission that we have. Lord, I pray that we would carry it out day by day in our lives and in your kingdom. In Jesus' heavenly name, I pray, Amen. What do you stand?